We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13, uh, verses 14 through 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. Just a little background. Beginning of this chapter, uh, the disciples approach Jesus with the questions about the temple because Jesus says that it's going to be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And so we're in the midst of uh, looking at what Jesus then says to his disciples concerning what's going to happen to Jerusalem, what's going to happen to the temple uh, in, in the foreseeable future in terms of his prophetic message to them. So beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then this would be Mark's parenthetical statement here, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Father, help us to uh, understand uh, the words, the significance of the words, the meaning and application of the words to us. Uh, First, help us to understand what it meant to the disciples as they're listening to Jesus. But then also, let it speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, last weekend last Sunday, I I shared my own coming to an an early understanding of the end times and so forth when I was in college. I called it the end times virus because once you got smitten with a particular view of the end times, you were in a tremendous fervor about making that position known and tying into it the necessity and urgency of of coming to Christ. Because in those days, uh, what was presented to me and people are still saying this today, is that you can read the headlines of the newspaper. You can read what's happening in Russia. You can read what's happening in in the Middle East. You can read what's happening in the Financial Times, and in those headlines, you're seeing biblical prophecy fulfilled. We're fast approaching the one world government. We're fast approaching everybody having to have the mark of the beast. We're fast approaching having microchips in your head or in your hand. It's going to be a cashless society. You've got to keep your eyes on the Middle East. Keep your eyes on Russia. because That's important too. Headlines, prophecy, tied together. The time is running out. There's great gospel urgency. Get out, share Jesus with everybody. Now, so back when I had this early, this end times fervency, this early, there's this, this fervor and fever about Jesus coming back right now. There were several things I didn't know. In fact, there are several things that most Christians don't know with respect to what the Bible says about end times. First of all, as I said last week, this this end times 
fever fervor related to the second coming is not a new thing in church history. During the time of the Reformation, there were those on one side of the Reformation that were saying exactly the kinds... Well, they didn't have headlines like we do. (laughs) They didn't have microchips. But they were saying the same kinds of things, that all these things were going to happen right then. Then in the United States, back in the 1840s, there was such a movement looking at the signs of the time saying that Jesus Christ is coming back soon that more than 100,000 sold all their possessions, fled to the mountains following this guy Miller, thinking Jesus was going to come back right then. They sold everything to follow Miller. Didn't happen. I also had the distinct impression back when I had this end times fever, the distinct impression, like many people have, that Bible prophecy is like a great big complex puzzle, but there's a place and piece for everything to be put together. Now, only Bible experts really know how to do it, but they've done it. And having put the prophetic pieces all together, they've taught it again and again and again in lots of different ways to lots of different people. In fact, most Americans in terms of Christians, believe that prophetic puzzle piece that all those pieces have been put together. They believe it. You know, that's the background for the Left Behind book series and things like that. But the truth actually is really very different. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has rightly commented that the history of the interpretation of, for instance, this chapter, chapter 13, this message of Jesus, and this also applies to everything prophetic, especially in the New Testament, the history of the interpretation of these passages has been exceptionally complex, immensely complex. And the best Bible scholars, we're talking about people who love Jesus, who love the infallible Word of God, who've given their lives to study, they themselves are not in any kind of full agreement about all of the details and about all of the events and about all of the different things that are going on in this passage. As a young believer, I didn't know that. I did not know that the study of the end times, that the study of that part of biblical revelation is radically different than the study of most other doctrines in the Bible. Now, I I hope you'll appreciate this. For instance, the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity can be spelled out so clearly that the average Christian, given proper exposure, can learn and reproduce all of those arguments and understand why the Bible teaches the Trinity. You don't need Greek. You don't need Hebrew. You don't need seminary. You only need a high school education. You only need to be able to read and understand what's written. Or the doctrine of Christ, the two natures of Christ. To understand that Jesus is fully God, fully man, you can read the scriptures, you could learn and study the scriptures, you wouldn't need any advanced degrees in order to actually handle what the scripture says about the deity of Christ. In the same way, the fallenness of human nature, the doctrines of original sin, you don't need any advanced studies. You don't. You really, really don't. You don't need Greek and Hebrew to read the Bible and come up with an accurate understanding of the fallenness of human 
beings and the sinfulness of man. Same way, salvation by grace through faith. Same way with respect to the authority and fallibility of the Bible. The same way with the developments of the covenant from the Old Testament to the New. Uh, the same way with the, the meaning and exposition of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the same thing, by the way, with respect to studying the definition and practice of marriage as the Bible defines it and the practice of human sexuality as the Bible defines it. You don't need advanced degrees. You don't need Greek and Hebrew to actually know accurately and clearly what the Bible says about those things. These things are exceptionally clear in the Bible. And they can be easily mastered by lay people without any kind of specialized academic training. But the interpretation of prophecy is not like that. How do you know? Because the smartest people in the Christian world hold different positions. The most trained, the most trained in the Old Testament Hebrew, the most trained in the New Testament and Greek, academic scholars, they come to a core of things that they all agree on and then a number of things where they do not, dis, they do not understand. So, but look, here's the truth. Should that bother you? doesn't bother me. Why? Because actually this is biblical. It's biblical that you don't understand and even scholars don't understand everything that prophecy says. It's biblical. Here's why. Even the prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied the coming of Jesus did not understand how the suffering of Jesus and the conquering of Jesus fit together. They didn't. They didn't see two distinct comings of Christ. The Old Testament picture paints a broad picture and nobody understood that Jesus had to come first as the suffering servant, and then he would come as the conquering king. Inspired prophets didn't get it. Don't expect uninspired scholars with an IQ of 185 to get it. They don't. They won't. They can't. Don't trust anybody who says he does. Don't. Don't trust anybody who is so super dogmatic that he says, this is the way it is. Because that goes beyond even what Jesus said about himself. Now, it's not surprising then with respect to this passage as it presents things that are happening and things that are happening much further along. It's not surprising that even the best godly scholars can't put chapter 13, it's parallel, Matthew 24, it's parallel in Luke 21. They can't put it all together and agree with each other. That's why we have post-millennials. That's why we have pre-millennials. That's why we have all-millennials. So, you won't find me giving you a definitive and detailed position on this. Truthfully, it would be dishonest for me to do so. It would be dishonest for me to pretend that I have a position and insight on this that the best scholars haven't. Last thought here. This is also something I didn't understand, but this is the case. This is the way it is. Most of the current end-time viewpoints, things that generate bumper stickers like this, in case of rapture, this car will not have a driver, you know, those kinds of things. 
Those are ideas generated by a dispensational form of theology. Once you don't read the Bible through dispensationalism, many of these so-called puzzle pieces that all fit together actually remain puzzle pieces that we really don't understand exactly how it's going to happen. So then, what can we get out of this passage? What is its value for us? Well, there's several vital truths. Uh, As we stressed last week, Jesus is speaking about the future. And the disciples didn't say, oh, come now. They said, when? When is it going to happen? They trusted Jesus. They believed Jesus. We should too. Even if we can't understand everything in these passages, if Jesus said it, believe it. The apostles have recorded it, trust it. It's true. But also, they were told things that were going to happen and warned, very strongly warned, not to get sucked in and not to be deceived. That was Jesus' great care for them as the highest shepherd of the sheep. Jesus knows his sheep, and in this manner he was protecting them from the possibilities that they might be deceived. He was protecting them from things that were going to come, a demonstration of his great love for us. But most significantly in this passage, Jesus refused to sugarcoat the truth because the hardest truth any Jew could ever hear was a truth that Jesus was going to give. And that is that Jerusalem is going to be invaded by the Gentile Roman armies and the temple is going to be destroyed again as it had been destroyed six centuries earlier. And this devastation is going to happen because God is bringing his judgment upon the Jews. That would be hard. The hardest thing that a Jew that a Jew who loves his faith, a Jew who loves his history, a Jew who loves the temple, that would be the hardest thing for a Jew to hear. Jesus didn't sugarcoat the truth. Jesus said it and they believed him. Now, the practical truth then that comes out of this passage can be this. Uh, the judgments of God are real because sin is real. But at the same time, Jesus is God's Savior, our Savior from sin and judgment. Now, with that truth in mind, I want us to recognize, and I'm going to have to move so fast, but there's three significant identifications we need to make in this passage. There's an identification of events, and then an identification of time, and then an identification of meaning. So I want to move through these as quickly as I can. In verse 14, Jesus is going to introduce us to a couple of events uh, as, as he begins this passage. Uh, the events involve the abomination of desolation, and secondly, the great tribulation. Now, With respect to these events, go back to chapter 13, verse 2, and we know that Jesus is looking to the future. He's already told them that Jerusalem will be surrounded because it it has to be surrounded by the enemy armies 
in order for the temple to be destroyed the way he says it's going to be destroyed. So in verse 14, all of that is assumed. The temple precincts are going to be invaded. The temple is going to be destroyed. So that's the context for the reference of the abomination of desolation. Then Mark says, let the reader understand. Well, what is he talking about there? Well, let the reader understand both history and the book of Daniel, because that's, those are the places where the abomination of desolation show up. In the book of Daniel, there are three places where the term, the reference of abomination of desolation found. So, Daniel 9.27. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel 11.31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. Then chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, what we need to understand is that this kind of prophecy reference is one that can have more than one fulfillment because it's predicting something that had already happened to the Jews in history. When Daniel's prophesying this, when it comes to him, it's about 15, it's about 540 B.C. But some years earlier, 586 B.C., the armies of Nebuchadnezzar had come to Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem, invaded Jerusalem, invaded the temple, took all the temple treasury, created sacrilege inside the temple, and then they had robbed all of the temple treasury and taken the temple of Solomon completely down. So what Daniel is predicting, the vision given to him three different times, is speaking about the kind of thing that had already happened to the Jews before. Because this is the kind of thing that could happen. It happened in 167 B.C. There was a Syrian king ruling over the Jews at that time, a couple of centuries before Christ. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he hated the Jews. And so he took his forces into Jerusalem, into the temple. He wanted to stop the Sabbath. He wanted to stop circumcision. And he actually put profane, unclean animals inside the temple and slew them there, as well as erecting a temple to Zeus. That abomination of desolation is, in fact, specifically prophesied in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Jesus is speaking about something that having happened once could happen again. And so he says, let the reader understand both Daniel and history. This has happened before. So Mark is saying, Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to stand, that's a signal to you. That's a warning to you. That is something to recognize when it happens. What's also important concerning this is the parallel in Luke 21, because Luke describes this abomination of desolation in more generic terms. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Now, here is where most scholars are agreed. They identify this event, most of them identify this in the same way. They say, hey, this is Jesus predicting what's going to happen at the time that the Romans 
bring their war against the Jews. Uh, we can identify then this abomination of desolation with the Roman armies coming into Jerusalem, coming into the temple, and setting up the Caesar's insignias because that was a sacrilege to the Jews. We can see this. We can identify this. Gentiles standing in the temple where they ought not to stand. Now, the second identification is that of the Great Tribulation. This is verses 19 and 20. Read this with me. For in those days there will be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, Matthew's parallel is almost exactly the same. It adds the word great. Uh, before tribulation. And Luke, his parallel adds some very important information. So Luke 21, 21, this is what, what Luke says. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that was written. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, meaning the Jews. Now Luke is saying that, that Scripture, meaning the Old Testament Scripture, has told us something of which the great tribulation is a fulfillment of. There's days of vengeance that are coming upon the Jews. The focus of the great distress upon the earth, particularly the Jews. So, most scholars here agree. Uh, the great tribulation, what happened to Jerusalem from 66 A.D. to 70 A.D., those three and a half years, uh, clearly fits what Jesus is talking about. Uh, tribulation? Really? Was it that bad? Well, we'll see about that in just a moment when we look at the meaning of all of this. How bad was it for the Jews when that happened? Was it really worse than anything else that had ever happened and it would never be equaled again? Well, we'll see. Now, the second question of, of, is what, that of identification, identifying the times that we're talking about here. Well, are these things only connected with the destruction of Jerusalem? Or are they also connected with the second coming of Jesus? I mean, that's the big question. Uh, the disciples themselves are basically asking that kind of a question in verse 4. When will these things be? And so it's appropriate for scholars to look at this and say, well, when will these things be? Try to figure it out. Now, some would divide up the verses and say the things that happened to Jerusalem and the abomination of desolation well, that happened during the time that Jesus first prophesied up to AD 70. But this great tribulation is something yet to come. So they want to separate that. Uh, others would say, no, the whole period, everything there up to AD 70, all of that is about the Jews. It doesn't mean anything else. It's all about the Jews. It has no connection to the second coming of Christ. And then you'll have those who say, no, this is both. You've got these things happening to the Jews, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation that happens then, and they're types. They have a greater fulfillment just before Jesus returns on the idea that what happened in Jerusalem could happen again. And it's going to happen again. There are those who believe there have to be, the temple has to be rebuilt, things like that going on. Now, again, if you ask, why can't they get this all figured out? Why do we have disagreement? Why can't we trust Bible experts to really explain all this? 
let me answer this again. Men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophets of the Old Testament, didn't get God's prophetic program clearly in view. They didn't. They didn't see, as I said, two distinct comings of Christ. But how about this? Even at the time of Jesus, when Jesus was born, those inspired by the Holy Spirit, when Christ first came, still didn't have the twofold coming of Jesus in mind. Uh, the angel Gabriel, if you look at his message to what he says to Mary, you don't see two distinct comings of Christ. It looks like everything that Jesus is is going to happen then. And then you take Mary's wonderful song that she sings, the Magnificat, and you read all through that. It looks like everything that Jesus is going to do is going to happen with his first coming. And then you read about John the Baptist's dad as he talks about Jesus first, then John the Baptist. It looks like everything that Jesus is going to do is going to happen then. And then they take Jesus to the temple. And he's going to be dedicated there. And you've got both Simeon and the prophetess, Anna. What Simeon says involves this idea that there's going to be many for the rising and falling in Israel because of Jesus, and even a sword will pierce her heart. But that still doesn't give us any idea that there's going to be two comings of Jesus. We don't get any picture by those of the Old Testament. We don't get any picture by those around the time of Jesus' birth that this coming of Jesus is going to be decisively in two different events. The angels from the realms of glory on the day of Jesus' birth, when they proclaim to the, the, the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You get no indication that the one who's born, King of kings and Lord of lords, well, his whole mission has two distinct parts. First, to come and suffer and die then to leave the earth, to be enthroned in heaven, and then to come again. My point is, don't be disappointed with the best scholars that they don't get it. No one has. No one does. Don't believe anyone who says, I have got it all figured out. It's not possible. It really fulfills something that God said through Moses in Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children. There are just certain things about this that truly are not revealed. So as to the time of all things connected to the final coming of Jesus, all the different things that we might have heard about, we really don't know. What we do know in the passage that we looked at last week, the gospel must be preached to all the world. And then the end will come. Now, finally, identification of meaning. What's the significance of this in terms of, of, of God's judgment upon the Jews, that they're going to go through a tribulation, that they're going to go through the Romans, uh, overwhelming them? What's the significance of this? Well, God is bringing judgment upon the Jews. Jesus had already said this. Back in Mark chapter 12, he, he presented a parable. It was the parable of the tenant farmers. And, and basically, it was outlining in that parable the history of Israel. God, the one who owned the vineyard, 
had leased out the vineyard to tenants to take care of it. And then time and again, God would send his servants to check on things. Those were the prophets. But the Jews themselves would mistreat the prophets, even kill the prophets. And finally, the the vineyard owner, the farmer, the one who owns everything, symbolizing God, says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they will respect him. And Jesus is basically saying, no, you're not going to respect me. You're going to kill me. And what's God going to do in response to you killing me? Well, he's going to take the vineyard from you and kill you and then give the vineyard to others who produce the fruit of it. That parable is a statement by Jesus of God's covenantal judgment upon the Jews. That his covenant with them is over. And of course, we know a couple of days after this, Jesus inaugurates the new covenant symbolically with the establishment of the Lord's Supper. And then he establishes it actually with his death upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension. So, the background for this, though, is found in Deuteronomy 28. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28. It's a long chapter. The first part, the brief part, is about all the blessings that God is going to bring upon Israel if they remain faithful to the covenant. Then, beginning around verse 15 or so, there's some 50 statements, 50 verses, a long section where God details the extent of his covenantal curses upon his people if they prove unfaithful to him. Of course, the greatest unfaithfulness is to reject the Messiah. In in verse 20, for instance, there's a kind of a summary where God says, the Lord, Moses speaking on God's behalf, the Lord will send unto you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Then God goes on later. Read one more section out of this. It speaks specifically to what happens in Jerusalem and Judea. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls basically fall, in which you trusted they'll come down. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord God has given to you. Verse 53, And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress which your enemies shall distress you. And what follows in Deuteronomy are further statements about the cannibalism to which the Jews will descend when God's covenant curses come upon them. Response to this, let me say. The Jewish historian Josephus who was involved in those wars and then wrote about them. And then the church historian Eusebius writing in the early part of the 4th century, recording what Josephus says, confirms the fact that what happened in Jerusalem is so different than what happened to the Jews during World War II. In World War II, the Jews were truly victims of the worst form of Germanic anti-Semitism, as well as apathy and uncare from the rest of the world. 
But the Bible makes it clear. The Jewish historian Josephus makes it clear. The church historian Eusebius makes it clear that what happened to the Jews in Jerusalem was their own fault. And they did these great evils to one another. They victimized each other again and again and again. Here's what Eusebius says. And it answers to what Jesus had predicted. But the people of the church in Jerusalem, the Christians, the Jewish Christians, had been commanded by a revelation, what we read in Mark 13, Matthew 24, vouchsafed to them by approved men that before the war they were to leave the city and to cross basically the Jordan River to dwell in the eastern parts in a town of Perea called Pella. And when those who believed in Christ had come thither from Jerusalem, then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, I mean, all the elect had left, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his prophets and totally destroyed that generation of men. The number of calamities which everywhere fell upon that nation at that time, the extreme misfortune of the inhabitants of Judea, the thousands of men, women, children that perished by the sword, famine, other forms of death, all these, as well as the many great sieges which were carried out against all the cities of Judea, and the excessive sufferings endured by those who fled into the city of Jerusalem. They thought it was a city of perfect safety. And then finally, the general course of the whole war, as well as the particular occurrences in detail, and how at last the abomination of desolation proclaimed by the prophets stood in the very temple of God, so celebrated of old, the temple which was now awaiting its total and final destruction by fire, all these anyone who wishes may find accurately described in the history written by Josephus, the Jewish historian. The point is this. You read those warnings that Jesus gives in verse 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. The disciples faithfully carried out those warnings. God answered the prayers that had not been in a winter time because much of their flight occurred during the summer. The wintertime presented swollen creeks, swollen rivers that couldn't be traversed. Now, as to pregnant and nursing women, I don't know. But, but God's elect fled. God's elect left. They were not caught up in this terrible thing that happened in terms of the God's judgment upon the Jews. So, in conclusion, what do we say? The story, the meaning of this part of this prophecy... God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises for good. He keeps his promises for calamity. He keeps his promises for good for those who have faith in Jesus. He brings his promises for calamity upon all those who refuse to repent of sin, who refuse to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
That leads us then to the Lord's table. Because as God was bringing his covenant curses upon the Jews to demonstrate that his covenant with them was terminated, that the old covenant had come to its end, Jesus was, in fact, inaugurating the new covenant. So what we read, what we say, what we understand, what Jesus was going to say to his disciples in just a couple of days, the bread, this is my body given for you. The wine represents the blood that I'm going to shed for the forgiveness of sins. Eat, eat, partake, drink, partake, because Christ has inaugurated a new covenant for us. This table, you need to understand in light of this passage, this table is our Passover. God's judgments came upon his own people. God's judgments, because of what Jesus did, the lamb slain, pass over us. We're saved and we are delivered. It is as the hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. Let's pray. Lord, may we see in the terrible things that happened upon your ancient people the terrible judgment, even the terrible judgments that will one day happen to this world. And may we, Lord, be grateful for your grace given to us that we are saved. We also pray, Father, that those we love, friends, family, those we don't even know yet, that they might turn and find salvation in your Son. Now prepare our hearts as we come to the table this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you to stand and sing hymn number 253. We're going to sing the first three stanzas. There is a fountain filled with blood.